0: Here comes Peter Cottontail. That's a that's an Easter song, Kev. Okay, Happy Easter. Happy Easter, Jim. <laughs> Hanson, are you there? Did you have a good Easter? I can imagine you dressed up like a Easter bunny, Warren, handing out candies.
1: I'm into it, Jim.
0: <laughs> Stick around. It's our Easter show. It's Easter show week. We got a lot coming up on Inside Curly. Last rock, eighth end, up by
2: two. Mm-hmm.
3: I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. Just clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't chill Line's it. really good. Line's in. Right on the
2: button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers
1: are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to
2: one. He will win his final grand slam. Taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down.
1: Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion.
0: Okay, welcome everyone. It's the week of april 19th this is inside curling with me jungle jim jerome and of course our two world curling hall of famers i haven't done that in a while Kev. announced you guys as really good curlers you and warren hansen first of all we'd like to thank our sponsors sports interaction they bring you what is happening around the curling world nestle boost presents the mailbag coyote tractor brings you hot rock topics and story time which we do each and every week is brought to you by meridian and we've got a guest in the house is brought to you by goldline mike harris is going to join us later on in the show What's happening around the curling world, Kev? The Princess Auto Championship, Players' Championship is in the books. This is a big one. It happened over the weekend. We're going to get an update from you. The World Mixed Doubles starts April 23rd in Geneva. We've got to talk about that. Hot Rock Topics. There is an interesting event taking place in, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Warren, Sunbeeburg Curling Club. You got it. I got it. I nailed it. It's in Stockholm. That happens uh, April 20th to the 24th. We're going to find out about that. And of course, we go to our mailbag. We've got an email on the residency rules. I don't know if this topic's ever going to go away. It's still around. So we're going to talk about that. In the house uh, is, uh, like we said, Mike Harris. He's doing a great job, uh, Kev.
3: I loved Kevin, the way they moved around the sheets. Yeah, around the rings. That's such an exciting day. I just love it. It's so quick. It seems like when you're in the booth, the games take two minutes. You're so busy and they're going from sheet to sheet to sheet. And you've got to watch all the sheets. And it's just fascinating. And that was uh, our producer, Curtis Savile's idea. And uh, boy, love it. Love that. It's
0: awesome as a fan, I'll tell you. I watched it all weekend. Uh, Warren, you got a story about the briar. Uh, this would be one of, I don't know, 925,000 stories that can come from the briar. <laughs> it's perfect. If you want to email us, insidecurling at gmail.com, we'd love to hear from you, and uh, we read them on air. And if you do, you get, a, you get a copy of Warren's book, Sticks and Stones. Sports Interaction brings you what's happening around the curling world. They are providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker, you got to be 19 to play, and we want you to play responsibly. Okay, Kev, give us the wrap on the Princess Auto Championship. There were six
3: Canadian teams were in the final eight. What happened? In the semis, we had Holman taking on Hasselborg, and Holman actually played great. They were two up going home with hammer, so it looked kind of like a a lock. But Hasselborg had one back button, and uh, Rachel tried to freeze to it. It was a little bit heavy on her first Anna puts one perfectly behind the guard top button. She owned the front and the back of the button in eight. Stole two, goes to an extra end. Actually, Rachel tried to play a freeze on her first again and was heavy in eight, was a little bit light in the extra end. And in the ninth end... And Anna once again puts her draw right on the button. And Rachel tried out draw it. There was a little wee bit of room, but not much, and missed it. So Hasselborg stole two and eight, stole the extra in to get to the final. And in the other semifinal, it was actually Tracy Fleury and Carrie Anderson. Carrie Anderson got three in the third, two in the fifth. It was an 8 4 game, not, not really close. Team Anderson were really good. They were going for their third player's championship in a row. And Team Hasselborg was going for their first players, but if they could win, they would have the career slam, which no women's team has ever had. So there's lots on the line. And actually, Anna Hasselborg wasn't feeling very good. And actually, she was going to come on our show today, Jim, but got a hold of me before and, and just, you know, still not feeling well. Anna, get better quick. We're all thinking about you. And uh, Anderson gets out to a 3 nothing lead, makes a beautiful intern tap in the first to go up 3 nothing. And I think the big turning point was a steal in the fifth for Hasselborg. But in the end, coming home, Team Hasselborg, one down. Anna on her first had to make a perfect roll. Otherwise, Carrie would have had an easy nose hit and she would have been forced to one. Makes a beautiful roll behind the corner. her understands has nothing but an angle raise on a corner guard into that shot stone to give herself a chance and makes it. So then then in the last shot of the game, the only shot Anna Hasselborg has is a thin double to win. Doesn't need to stick the shooter, though, because she has a couple of kickers on the other side. Makes a thin double. So what a finish to the women's final. Yeah. A hit and roll perfect, an angle raise perfect, a thin double perfect. Hasselborg wins to get her the career slam, also the Pinties Cup. Kevin, what's the Pinty's Cup, Kevin? It's sort of like the FedEx Cup in golf, where you get points all year in the Grand Slams, and the Players' Championship is worth double the points, and at the end, they're all totaled up. So the four teams, let's just talk about that then on the women's side. Hasselborg ended up winning the Pinty's Cup. Team Fleury came in second, Ainerson third, and Holman fourth. Those were the final four. So let's talk about the men's, and then we'll bring up the Pinty's Cup there as well. So in the semi, Bruce Mowat beats Brendan Botcher pretty easy. Like it was a tie game, 1-1 playing the fourth, and then uh, Bruce got a really nice three in the fourth. Mind you, Pat Jansen had a, a hit and roll to the center, flash, and then a rollout on the next one, and then Brendan on his first one flashed, gained three points in the fourth, and that was basically the ball game at that point. So, uh, Mowat won that one. And then in the other semi was a heck of a game. The two people that have played each other on a weekly basis lately, Nick Adeen and Brad Gooshu, it was just a fantastic game. Brad Gushu made about a 15 foot raised chisel to knock Shotstone off the button. Only thing Nick had to win the game was a wide out turn draw through a port right to the very edge of the button. Brad had a piece of the button, I think, mm-hmm. but, and he had to hit a bigger piece made it perfect for a 6-5 win. And uh, it's safe to say that Brad Gushu does not want to play Nick anymore for a while. He's had enough of them. <laughs> right. But anyway, in the final, it was not close. Nick actually had a raised double on his last in the second, but it picked. But then it was 5 nothing, and there's just no way of coming back on a team like Bruce Mowat. So once again, uh, Bruce and company, the last five Grand Slam finals in a row, and have won four of them. They have just really owned the Grand Slam tour for the last five events. So so now if we talk about the uh, Pinty's Cup, uh, Mowat, by winning the semi, he'd already won the Pinty's Cup because they've done so well all the time in the slams. Brad Guju coming second, Nick third, and Brendan Botcher fourth. On the Pinty's Cup, on the men's side. Well, that's unpredictable. Pretty, yeah. You know, you look at those names, right? Hasselborg, Flurry, Anderson, Holm, all the long shots. Yeah, it's uh, that's just the way it is right now, and uh, there's no no question about it. But that's what happened at the Players Championship, which is great. You know, it was in the the old Maple Leaf Gardens, Jimmy. I just love that building and and the area. Friday night, I had the evening off, so I just walked to the ball game. It's not a very far walk, go down to Rogers, watch the ball game and then you know head back to the hotel and it's just it's a real cool event if anybody has the opportunity to come and watch the players. It's it's fantastic.
0: How was the crowd kept for the men's final? There were no Canadian t- teams in, of course it was Dean and Mowat. Did they keep up the
3: good attendance? Uh, I would say it dropped a little bit because there's no Canadian team, but not bad. Not bad. But look at the two teams. So yeah, no it was it was good. It was it was really good. Ticket sales were good. 2019 on the weekend was just about a sellout, and the ticket sales were actually better this year. But with COVID, a lot of people are pretty careful about being too close to other people. It's right. It's an it's a it's a it's an odd time, and a lot of people didn't come for the whole event. So you you saw that on TV. There was not as full as 2019, but there were more tickets sold. You know, one of those COVID things. Right. But a huge success nonetheless in uh, Toronto.
0: Boy, I bet nobody picked Mowat and Adin in the final or or so (laughs) forth. What do you take away
1: from the weekend, Warren? couple of things. I'd first like to say, again, the Around the Rings coverage I thought was phenomenal and you're able to keep on top of every game with the way that it's approached by Sportsnet and I think that's a, a huge step forward for covering curling. Some excellent games, I thought in particular the gushu Aden game, the semifinal, was was outstanding and what a finish. I thought the Einerson hasselberg and the Hasselberg-Holman games were both really entertaining because there were some shots missed in both those games which uh, added some excitement to it, especially the one between Hasselberg and Einerson when Hasselberg was down three after the first end and just how they just kept the pressure on kept the pressure on and to keep a lead for uh, seven ends is is really really difficult and often the other team that is down the three points sometimes takes a lot of chances maybe earlier than they need to and as a result end up getting behind more points mm-hmm. but Hasselberg was very careful and I, I really was uh, impressed with how she just kept the pressure on Einerson in that game and eventually it worked out for her with, with a great shot to finish it off. So I thought it was uh, was really entertaining weekend. I think uh, Kevin and I both on the women's side, we picked teams that were, were there in the end, Einerson, Muirhead, Tirazoni, I think were teams we picked along with Hasselberg. I had selected Holman because I thought she may do well coming off the Ontario Championship. So I think we were well in the ballpark there. And the same thing on the men's side. Uh, I think we both picked it in in Mote and Gushu. And I think Kevin had a couple of others in there, but I think we were both fairly close on the teams that ended up in the final playoff.
0: I picked McEwen. Boy, that was close. <laughs> I, I want to get a quick comment from both you Kevin and Warren. How come I'm seeing Kevin on on some social media people saying what's wrong with Rachel Homan? Jeez. What's
3: is there anything wrong or, is, or... uh I don't know. They did they did pretty well. They they gave up a bad steal of 2 in 8. Otherwise, they would have been in the final. Again, 11-time Grand Slam champion. So, I don't know. I think I I don't see a big problem. I I you know, a little bit of a shakeup on the team might Be a good thing, you know, get some new energy coming in and Tracy Fleury, who's an awesome player coming in, change things up a little bit. You've got great athletes with Sarah and Emma, I'm assuming playing front end. They haven't really announced the position of everybody on that team, but I'm assuming that just because, you know, what great athletes to, to have sweeping. And then Rachel and Tracy figuring out who's going to skip, who's going to throw third, who's going to hold the broom, what's going to happen there. But I don't see anything much wrong with Rachel Holman, you know, goes to another Olympics and she's the top of the game. It's just, could she have won a players and, and, and maybe picked up an Olympic medal? Sure. That would have been awesome. But she didn't. I don't think that means there's something wrong. The competition's tough at the highest level.
1: I thought watching her a couple of times, um, I'm looking at her body language and and her facial expressions. I would say there's a little bit of a confidence issue there at the moment, which again can happen to the best of players from time to time. Things just aren't feeling good to you and and you haven't got the same confidence in your own abilities that you had, but that will pass. And it may be something she's going through, but uh, I agree with you. She's still one of the best players in the game.
0: Well, it does tell me that curling fans are tough critics. Okay, (laughs) The World Mixed Doubles, Warren, April 23rd in Geneva. Uh, Set us up for that.
1: All right. So this event has been played under a little different formats uh, in the last number of years. I think the one they've come up with now is probably what they're going to stick with, which which isn't bad. There's 20 teams playing in two pools. After the round robin, three teams will qualify from each pool. Now listen closely because uh, I don't want this to become confusing, but the second place team from A will play the third place team from B. And the same thing in the other pool with uh, the second-place team from B playing the third-place team from A. The winners will go against one of the first-place teams, and then the two winners will play for the title. In the pools, in the A pool, I think the teams to watch, Canada's there without question. Australia, Dean Hewitt and Ty Cale, we may remember them from the Olympics and how well they did. Scotland, how can you not think that this team's going to do well? Bobby Lamy, Eve Muirhead. In the USA, Matt and Rebecca Hamilton, they've been there a number of times at the Mixed Doubles Worlds, and again, they should do well. The other countries in the A pool are Czech Republic, England, Spain, Germany, Hungary, and Turkey. In the B-side, Italia, Moussard and Constantini will certainly be to be contended with. Korea, possibly, could be a one to watch, along with Norway. Switzerland, again, Michelle Sven Michelle and Alina Patz. Alina Patz, probably the best women's curler in the world. And in Sweden, Rasmus Rana with his sister, Isabella. And we saw Isabella play this last weekend. Certainly, I think, is going to be giving Hasselberg lots to worry about on the women's side. So again, that's a team to watch. The other countries in the B pool, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Japan, and New Zealand.
3: I think you're bang on on the top end, Warren. But what I like to see is England, Spain, Hungary, Turkey, Estonia, New Zealand. Of course, Italy being one of the favorites, if not the favorite wonderful uh, representation around the world right now in mixed doubles. I just love seeing that when I look through these, these pools and I'm not arguing, you know, who should win or shouldn't win, but man, I love seeing all these new countries and Turkey, of course, being in the women's worlds this year, so they're obviously building a really good program to be in the mixed doubles and the women. So, you know what, that speaks to me, the growth of our, our terrific sport as the World Curling Federation continues to grow more and more nations into our, our fold. In, in the game. That's what strikes me when I look at the mixed doubles, is the variety of countries that uh, we have playing our game. I'm picking Canada. How come none of you guys are picking Canada? Brett and Jocelyn? Absolutely. You know what? I'm not going to argue Brett and Jocelyn could easily win this thing with about four or five others <laughs> that could easily win it. I just like to see the, the vast amount of uh, growth in our sport because that bodes well for the future.
0: Right. Hey, Warren, is, since February, I mean, it seems to me there's been curling every, every week, which is fantastic. Is it the most you've ever seen in a compacted schedule, Warren, in all your time?
1: Well, there's more happening all the time. And I think as a result of it, the season's getting extended. And once we get through the whole COVID issue, I, I think you'll still see things going well into end of April, May. So it's not going to change much.
0: Uh, Thanks a lot to Sports Interaction, bringing you what's happening around the curling world, which is, like I said, is still lots going on. Hot Rock Topics is brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. So as we said at the top of the show, there's an event taking place in Stockholm, April 20th at the Sundyberg Curling Club. One of the main organizers of this event is James Dryberg who has brought all of this to our attention. Warren, what's this all about? How did it make the calendar here?
1: Yes, well, James is a guy both Kevin and I know, and uh, he's a very enthusiastic curler, to say the least. But uh, he started in 2015 developing what they've called the Nordic Junior Curling Tour, short-term NJCT. In 2016, they added what he's called Over the Pond Junior Exchange in collaboration with Mark Kennedy, and Kevin would be familiar with, a spiel that Mark is doing at the St. Albert Curling Club. In 2017, they added a summer camp. And then in 2019, through discussion, they decided to start what they have referred to as the unofficial World Junior Mixed Doubles Championship. The WCF has sort of given them the green light because they do not have any intention of establishing a World Junior Mixed Doubles Championship at this time. So in 2019, they started this thing with 12 teams represented were Canada, Scotland, Switzerland, Sweden, Denmark, Hungary, and they had a wildcard team. COVID killed the event in 2020, but they have returned this year, and now they have 16 teams. Again, this time around, Canada, Scotland, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Czech Republic, and this time, two wildcard teams. The focus of this event is fun. They have uh, pizza nights, uh, banquet, uh, games night, uh, going on a boat trip, all things that uh, the kids would enjoy. Since this thing has started, they feel they have engaged over 800 juniors and coaches from 23 different countries, Canada's involvement, from what James tells me, is the Ontario Junior Curling Tour that has a number of events that have sent a champion to this event uh, the first year and again this year. So we're hoping this all goes well and wish James and his group all the best of luck. And I think this is a great initiative and hopefully more things of this nature will begin to spring up. What are your thoughts on it, Kevin?
3: Well, I'm all about junior curling and junior bond spiels. And I think it was 17 years I ran the, the Kevin Martin Jr. Bond spiel in Edmonton. And Mark Kennedy, actually, when I was done running mine, he started his taking over, which is wonderful. And and Mark's involved in this, which is fantastic. But kids want to be doing stuff all the time. So you play in these Ontario events or Mark's event. And if you win, then you get to go overseas and play an event. Are you kidding? This is awesome for juniors. We need to expand that sport. And if uh, James is going to do it, great. You know that's that's wonderful um, because it's those gold medals count the same as the four team medals, and we just need to grow the mixed double sport in Canada and and the four person curling as well for juniors. But but worry about it all. And this is a great step forward.
0: Yeah, congratulations, James Dryberg. I think I heard you right, Warren that he's brought in 800 juniors.
1: That's what he's claiming, that they have engaged 800 juniors and coaches from 23 different countries with what they've done so far. That would be their Nordic Junior Curling Tour, their curling camps, and this World Mixed Doubles Championship. So congratulations, James and group, for what you have done.
0: There you go. That's how you develop curling. Uh, Well done. Uh, Thanks a lot to Coyote Tractor, who bring you hot rock topics each and every week. Time to go to the mailbag, brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. As I say each and every week, I do. uh, Keeps the weight off. Uh, I love it. This is an email from Dawson Ballard. I just thought I would share my thoughts on the residency rules that is under some scrutiny and debate. Should the residency rules be removed completely? I believe that the briar would become non-existent. The briar is traditionally about each province playing each other. But without the residency rule, provinces would no longer be a thing as players can form teams with whoever and wherever they wish. By this logic, Team Cooey could play out of PEI, as it would no longer matter who represents each province. Should the current Briar format stay the same despite the change in residency rules, to change the residency rules would be to completely restructure the Briar and the teams that can qualify. Even by easing up the rules a little bit, allows more players to play for provinces they are not from. What are your guys' thoughts? Does this change your view on the importance of the residency rules? All the best. Dawson Ballard. I got to say, Warren and Kevin, get rid of the residency rule. Who cares what province they're from? Dawson's not going to like me. (laughs) Warren, why don't you go first on this? I think I know how you feel about it.
1: We selected this email because we're getting a lot of them, and we've got people on both sides of the equation here, but I, I picked Dawson's because he's probably on a different page than than we are on this. I understand the difficulty of this whole situation because it's historically how things were done. But I guess today we have evolved to the point with the Olympics and the World Championships and the advancement of other nations that I don't think it's any longer appropriate that when we send teams to World Championships that they have provincial boundaries attached to them. And that's virtually what we've done. We're saying when we send a team to a World Championship by the process we're using, they're not from Canada, they're from a specific province. And, and I'm not aware of any other sport that probably approaches things this way. To some degree, the residency rule has kind of been scrapped sort of anyway, because you can now have one import in the team. And it's the birthright rule it says, well, if you don't live in the province you're playing out of, it's, it's okay as long as you were born there. So we know there's a couple of teams this last few years that have virtually been out there with maybe only one player that's really living in the province they're playing out of. So it is sort of scrapped to some degree, but I understand the difficulty in getting out of this from where we sit. And I think if we want to have an interprovincial competition, that's a great idea. But let's not use that to determine who's going to represent Canada at the Worlds. We don't do it for the Olympics. And my question has always been, if this system is so unique why are we doing a different system for the Olympics than we are for World Championships? So I know it's a tough one. Maybe we begin to ease out of it further by starting off by saying, OK, we're going to allow two imports per team and and see how that goes. But we know very well there's a couple of teams going to this next quadrennial that are going to be in some trouble with this residency rule the way it is to, to put together a team that they might like to have. I think, it, again, it all needs to be slowly but surely moved forward. And uh, I'm afraid I don't quite agree with Dawson that it will destroy the briar if it doesn't exist anymore. If you play on a hockey team out of Toronto or Montreal or wherever, uh, I don't don't think there's any requirement that you must live in that city or be born in that province. And and, and we can put across the line, not just a professional level, pretty near any level. So I think it needs to be looked at again. And Kevin... (laughs) let's hear what your thoughts are and what dawson has to say
3: yeah well i don't i don't you know i don't have any real strong thoughts i don't think other than when you play in any of the events so let's just let's start with a tour event you're either a canadian team or you're a scottish team or a italian team or a swedish team whatever you happen to be when you play in the whirling tour when you come to the slams and you look at the scoreboard you're representing Sweden or Switzerland or Canada or wherever you're from, what country. The only place where you are a provincial rep is in the uh, play down to a national championship scenario. To your point with the various teams, could be hockey, but it could be football or you name the sport. You wear the University of Alberta golden bear uniform. You wear the Edmonton Elks. Those players likely aren't all from Alberta, all the U of A volleyball team. They're probably from other places. I just don't know why we worry so much about the players needing to be from a certain city or certain province in curling. It's it's just kind of a different way of looking at it, I guess. And you, you'd still wear your Alberta colours, I think. And a lot of people are really think it's important. I I don't. I think the Breyer's really strong. I think the Scotties is really strong. I just don't know. When you're trying to compete with teams like uh, Silvana Teranzoni and, and Anna Hasselborg and Bruce Mowat and Nick Adeen, you need to be able to put the absolute four best players on that ice to have a chance to beat them. They're very, very good. And we have some really, really good players too. And we were talking about on the broadcast, everybody, just so you know, we we're talking about one A, one B, and one C in the men's curling. It's Brad Guju, Nick Adine, and Bruce Mallet. Who's the best team? Well, argue it out. They're all three really, really good. But we we're talking about Brad's team. You got Brad and Mark who are from Newfoundland. They've been forever. But Brad Galant's from PEI. And Jeff Walker's from Alberta. And now Brett's going to be from Calgary because him and Jocelyn are are moving to Calgary. But you just need to build the best team possible to have a chance to win at the highest level in curling now. And I just don't see residency helping that. There's only, say, four or five or six teams in in Canada in in the men's and women's who have a legit shot of winning and then doing well at the world level. Maybe not even that many. That might be a a bit too high. I, I just don't see why we don't allow them to be built anyway, any any way they can, any way they have the ability, so that they have the chance to win at the world level.
0: Yeah, you, you can go back and listen to our, our our podcast. Brad Jacobs was on and talks about that. Of course, the residency rule. Warren, like if I'm in Newfoundland, okay, where there's Brad Gushu, uh Northern Ontario's Brad Jacobs, and and Alberta's got you know two or three teams. I, if I'm a team in Newfoundland. I'm going, I've got no shot here uh, under this provincial boundary thing. you got to wait for Brad to retire. I would think they would be against that, Warren.
1: This is a strange part of it. It's my point as well, that this current system is not uh, helping these smaller provinces. It's hurting them because for the reasons, as you've mentioned, but also there could be, look at a Brent Gallant uh, coming out of PEI, and he just doesn't have three other people there to play with that ever take him to the level that he is as a curling athlete. And I can give a couple other curlers from some of the smaller provinces that have been pretty good players, but because they've never moved outside those provinces, they just haven't re- been able to get three other people to play with them. So I look at it as it's, it's a detriment to a, a good player in a small province to be tied by these rules. The other thing, I mean, it's history again, and if we go back to look at the Breyer in particular, which is the flagship property, it started by four guys playing out of a curling club and taking their team to play in a region and then into a province. Distances were an issue then. There was no flights. There was probably the main travel was by train. And so you end up playing out of a curling club. And yet today, I can listen to Breyer and Scotty's telecast talking about being out of a curling club. And a lot of these players, the club that are supposedly playing out of, have probably barely set foot inside the door. That was like that 40 years ago, never mind now. So we're hanging on to something that really isn't happening anymore. And I hope we're able to find some way to slowly but surely, I realize it probably can't be done overnight, but to have a progression that slowly moves away from this idea of having to be a resident of the province that uh, you're playing out of if this whole thing is to continue the way it is.
0: Yeah, thanks for the email, and uh, the email sort of overlaps. This email overlaps with Hot Rock Topics. Certainly something's got to change. I'm going to get killed here, Kevin, okay, for <laughs> saying they should get rid of it, okay? I've avoided getting bad emails. It's all
1: Warren. <laughs> yeah. The emails we get the next week, Jim, we'll just refer to you, or anything on Facebook that you can answer <laughs> okay. it.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's Mailbag brought to you by Nestle Boost. Uh, if we read your email, you're going to get a copy of Warren's book. Email us insidecurling at gmail.com. Time for In the House, brought to you by Goldline. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus their retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga. And they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline is at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. I told you we got a great guest. He's knocking at the door. Kev, here was the worst day of his life. Maybe your worst day is when he beat you at the Olympic trials, but his worst day is when he had to move up a (laughs) T-block. He is our guest, Olympic silver medalist, 2004 Briar, and now a household name and doing an unbelievable job with Sportsnet as a commentator. Would you please welcome? Come on in Mike Harris.
2: How are you, Mike? Thanks for that uh, rousing introduction, Jim.
0: Yeah okay you realize
2: you, you realize you were fourth on the list. at least that I've been working with Kevin for about a month solid now and I uh, finally got the call. That, that's good. I figure you figure scraping the bottom of the barrel here somewhere but that's okay. yeah I,
0: I feel your pain. I remember getting the call from Kevin and Warren to host a podcast and I was the 12th <laughs> guy that finally said. It. <laughs> you know what I didn't realize this when I was looking up this morning uh, when you when you won the Olympic trials. You beat a guy who never loses a big game in Kevin. So I want to I ask you about that. How, how did that game go? This is I'll tell you what, let's just say you won 14-2 and they gave up after six ends.
2: You know, for our team, it was just a big breakthrough, right? And uh, to beat Kevin, honestly, we were just happy to kind of get there. And, you know, I, I only remind him of it. It's not daily, <laughs> but it's often. Uh, so, Mike, before we bring in Kevin and
0: Warren, uh, you know, I sat down and watched the Princess Auto. I, I looked at uh, the eight teams the eight men's teams, for example, I said, we're going to be in good shape here. Six of them are from Canada. There's not a chance here we can't get something out of this. And it wasn't the case. Of course, um, Mowat beat Adine. I still feel, Mike, like, you know what? We taught you guys. We taught all you guys, okay? All right? So you need to know that, folks. We taught them. But they're stealing our game. Is it it still the case, Mike?
2: I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. I mean, to your point, six of the eight playoff teams... And, you know, in a field that has all the best teams in the world, we're into the playoffs, which is great. The problem, it's not a problem, but, you know, Bruce Howitt and Nicodine are the two best anywhere else in the world. And at this moment, you know, you can make an argument for either one of them being the best team in the world. You know, certainly Nicodine with his gold medal and six world titles and everything else he's won. And, and of course, uh, Mouts in the last 18 months, He's won just about everything other than the Olympic gold. Of course, he wasn't at the world championship. So you got two unbelievable teams that met in our men's final. But you know, I think I think the game's in good hands in Canada. Just you can't just have a day off against either one of those two. That's the problem. You know, full credit to Maud and Nadine and all the Canadian teams understand they have to those are the two guys that the most of the events go through. You know, we're either world championship or or one of our slams these days. They're they're awesome teams.
0: On the women's side, Mike, uh, Rachel had a shot. At the end, uh, some might, you know, someone say, "Oh, she'll make this." She didn't. Nerves came in. Uh, is, it t- is it time for a team to break up?
2: The the challenge for Rachel is is it's become a little bit fragile with what's gone on this year with missing the playoffs at the Olympics and it was a tough season. Obviously, a great team, and obviously, Rachel's a prodigy, one of the best we've ever produced in Canada. And I say we, it's all her. She's she's unbelievably talented and a phenomenal player um but you know they're 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 making a change nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen yet they haven't announced who's going to be skipping but they're bringing Tracy Flurry on board who is definitely not a front-ender, so you're going to see MMSU move down to second for the first time in her career. And the question is whether or not it's going to be Tracy skipping or whether it's going to be Rachel skipping. You know, that would have been a tough loss against Hasselborg in the, in the semi, to say the least. I mean, steal two and eight and steel one and nine to go to the players' final. That would have been a tough one to swallow. They kind of controlled the whole game. Listen, she's another team that's a world champion, has won everything there is to win. There's nothing, nothing wrong there with uh, with Team Home, and they, you know, they're they're time to make a change, and um, I'm excited to see what they're going to do next year with with bringing uh, Tracy on board. Right
3: on, Kevin. Well, let's go a little further down that path with. Uh I, I, I'm with you, Mike. I, I don't think it's very uh, odd that we have all the te- team changes at the end of the quadrennial or even for a lot of the top teams, it's actually been eight years they've been together. And that's a long that's a long time when you're together well, every weekend in hotels and you travel together all the time. It's really tough to keep the chemistry going forever. So uh, it doesn't surprise me. But in your mind, the changes that have been made have a lot of the teams benefited? And do you think that the teams have set themselves up because of geography instead of talent like could teams have went a different way
2: I'm not seeing that yet Kevin I mean I I just think that you're suggesting that maybe some teams aren't getting the players they want because they can't have people from four different provinces sort of thing that's I, I don't I don't know that that's true because I think there's a huge part of the of being successful involves sharing people with that are like-minded and a lot quite often people from the same parts of the country could argue would have similar mindsets. Now having said that, I mean I think the curling community is quite tight and quite small at the top, the very top. So we're seeing a few, quite a few changes. You know, I don't I don't put a whole much of weight into, you know, you get the teams that are twenty-seventh on the list announcing their <laughs> their lineup changes and et cetera. But the top four, five, six teams in the country are kind of just swapping players around. I don't know that that's geographically restricted, I guess, is maybe the word we're looking for. Time will tell, of course. But You know, we've got a couple of wild cards out there. You got, you said Brad Jacobs being the big one who's decided to take a year off, and whether or not he decides to come back, that will affect things. Much like Mark Kennedy last cycle, where Mark took a, you know, Mark took a year off to kind of let his body heal. So this is the first year uh, of, of some of the changes coming up. Not all of the teams will be there together for the full four years. They might see one or two personnel changes after next season. So that's 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 to be expected.
3: Especially especially if Brad Jacobs comes back. He will have a good team <laughs> guaranteed. I think it was during the final, the men's final. You you talked about the Scottish technical system i had no idea right you know, we have we have listeners from all over the world and uh and not everybody would have heard the broadcast i'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the technical analytic system that scotland uses and, and you know that because you're coaching a team from scotland for a bit weren't you working with the program
2: that's right yeah I, I worked with uh tom brewster six years ago now i guess and this is before they built their uh dedicated facility in sterling they're really progressive when it comes to using the technical stuff a lot of uh teams record their games and the thing that they do that which i found really unique is that they have a, a scoring system much like there's a bunch of apps where you can do stats et cetera. but they're they have a, a custom driven one that they wrote they record a video that goes along simultaneously to that so what happens is when they when they you know when the shots called they decide you know in turn out turn whatever the shot is and then they also have a degree of difficulty associated with the shot and then they rank the scoring out of i think it was out of 5 i can't remember exactly but what it does is it it, it all of the shots you know as the calls are made and then following following the game you take the video and they have a software system that syncs the video to the timing of when you entered the shot in. So if you want to go look at the the second's last rock in the fifth end, you just go onto the the scoring software, which you can easily just click on the shot and the video pulls up and syncs right beside it automatically, which is really cool. So you can watch the video of what the call was, how you got there, all that sort of stuff. And then the other really cool part of it is you can access any game that your team has recorded as a coach. You can access any of the games you had played over the last number of years So I'm sure they've enhanced it since then. That was six years ago. And we had Eve Muirhead on talking a lot about analytics, where they have their coaches. They have all the stats against the specific team you're on the ice against. So we saw uh, Eve Muirhead lose the quarterfinals to Anna Hasselborg. But she knew exactly when she plays Anna Hasselborg, the chances of her winning when she's one up is about a 50% difference when she's one down. One down with the hammer versus one up without. She'd rather be one up without. There's a 50% difference. With most teams, it's about a... 10 to 15 percent difference so she knew it's way better to be ahead one than than down one. she gives her a 30 percent more of a chance of winning where you think one down with is a pretty good situation and it is but for her against that particular team it was way better for them to be one ahead they gave up a steal of one in the seventh and Eve kind of knew in her back for mind that wasn't good for her in in their chances to win so you know they have all of that data readily available all the time for these for the teams and uh, each team that's in the high performance program has their own uh, access code to go in and look at their games. So you be playing a bondspiel in middle of nowhere, Slovenia, and be able to look up any of the games you played over the last two, three, four years, however many, however long you've been in the data, which is really cool. So they're they're really progressive, and they wrote the software themselves. It's proprietary to them, and they don't they don't uh, share. Because I've asked if we could buy it or whatever else, they're they're not willing to part with it, which which makes sense. But it's really cool. They're they're very very advanced. On top of that, they built this high performance training center in Stirling, which has you know, all the video analysis, which, you know, draw the arrows and the lines, and much like you know golf swing analysis type software. So they're they're very very technically advanced. Uh, the Scots the Scottish high performance program is.
1: Hey Warren, go ahead. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, good discussion on Scotland, and while we're on that. Topic. Let's delve into it further. Uh, I look at history, and if I go back into my time, Scotland seemingly always was the was the mother club of curling, and very much hung on to the old ways, old ideas. But as time went on, Scotland was sliding farther and farther down the ladder as far as winning at the world level. So their changes have produced some really good results. E. Muirhead gets gold at the Olympics. Bruce Mowat gets silver. And Bruce Mowat, I think unquestionably right now, is probably the best men's curling team in the world. What about Canada? Where does Canada go? If I look at the last four years, two Olympics, four worlds, 12 events, four-person curling, Canada has won one gold. They've won medals seven out of 12 times. For most countries, except Canada, I guess you'd say that's great. But what does Canada do from here? We take a look at things too, like Brad Gushu. Obviously, right now, he's the best men's team in Canada, yet that team's being broke up maybe some degree because of geography, but I look at uh, who's he going to get under the current rules to replace uh, Brent Gallant. He's got a challenge there. So with the whole system we're currently looking at, where does Canada go from here? Is there a need for a big room discussion as to what we're going to do or what's your opinion on all this?
2: I I think there's two distinct challenges that they have got. One is the national team coaches don't spend enough time with the top teams Personally, you know, when I look at Scotland and and a lot of it has to do with the number of teams we have in Canada. So let's start there. We have we do have some depth. So you can't have your national team coaches spending a ton of time with or more time with one team than the other just because of the politics of it. However, what I would be interested to see is if they assigned, say they've got four or five top coaches where they're the ones that that spend a majority of the time, and I don't think you need to go much deeper than. Six, seven teams—that would be—that would be quite deep into the into the system. I hate to say it, I mean a lot of the top fifteen would say, well, "Well, what about us?" But you know, when you're talking elite level, you know, chance of winning a world championship—you can't go too deep into into it. But the problem we've got is we have national team coaches that get assigned to the world championships. And they may not have spent time with the teams that are actually becoming the champions of the Scotties and or the Breyer or the World or the Juniors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so when you look at the other countries, because there's fewer people, that's one reason. When they do get to a Worlds or in an Olympics, they've spent an, a, an extended period of time with the entire coaching team. The example I always go back to is Rachel Holman in Pyeongchang. When Rachel <laughs> looked up to the bench, there was one person on the bench that she knew. That was adam kingsbury who was her sports psych you know she was assigned two new people a new fifth she was told she couldn't bring a regular fifth along and she was told she had to bring a new coach along and that was renee she really didn't have the support that she needed when, you know she won the worlds the year before undefeated and when she looked up on the bench at the olympics there was two changes up on the on the bench you know the th- two of the three people that were up there but the first time she'd worked with them, it made no sense to me. So, Curling Canada just needs to be careful with making sure that the teams that go into the Olympics and/or Worlds just have everything that they want to get ready, rather than what Curling Canada thinks is important to the team. There's there's certain guidelines, of course, that you need to adhere to. With, you know, Curling Canada can help with that, but when it comes to like their prep and the coaching and everything, all that other sort of stuff. I would like to see that not such a hard, fast rule that it's going to be Jeff Stouten and Elaine Dagg Jackson as your two national team leaders. Why are we stuck on sending those too long? If you really haven't ever worked with those people, for an extended period of time it seems like a big disadvantage so i would just be careful with that if i was going to make a change and, and make sure that the, the, the you know your top four or five teams can kind of do what they wish within the within the program guidelines that they would like to be comfortable rather than curling canada thinking well this is the right thing we need to do and and move on that way so it's not that the other teams are better than canada it's just now they're as good and any little thing you leave you know, if you're not, if you haven't turned over every uh, option to the to the teams to get as ready as best as best they can, then it's, you're at a disadvantage.
1: You talked about the uh, Scottish analytics system. Is there need to further develop that type of thing in Canada more than has been done to this point? What are your thoughts on that?
2: You're probably best to bring in Paul Webster and, and discuss what they have <laughs> available to them. Yeah, but yeah, the short answer is yes. You need to have every tool. These aren't expensive things, right? I mean, you can. There are plenty of software programs out there that I'm sure they could do just as much as they need to so but i know that all of the teams in the national program for scotland and china we have a routine of how we go over the games and all of their national team coaches have spent extensive periods of time with all of the national athletes in that program to understand what's expected and how they deal with with post-game and pre-game all that sort of stuff so it's pretty specific routines that they're all used to before they get to the worlds or the olympics
1: so, Mike, let's talk about the mixed doubles. World Championship starts in Geneva on the 23rd. Canada's got a really good team in Brett Gallant and Jocelyn Peterman. How do you see the mixed doubles world shaking down? Who do you think are going to be the, the teams that are going to be, let's say, the final four when we get down to the end?
2: That's a tough one. I think Brett and Jocelyn have a great chance of winning. But it's, it's uh, Sven Mikkel and uh, Alina Petz, hometown team. They've won it before. Switzerland seems to have some sort of stranglehold on the mixed doubles that I can't quite get a grasp on. They've won nine world championships and uh, seem to always be there in the playoffs, which is incredible. Yeah, and you've got the Vrana team, uh, Rasmus and his sister Isabella from Sweden. They'll be good. The usual suspects, if you know what I mean. So, Brett and Jocelyn have a great chance of winning Canada's first gold medal at the Worlds. I think that's... uh, I'll go out on a limb and say they're gonna they're gonna get it done because I thought they should have been there in Beijing as well. That, that they would have been my first pick for sure. I think sixteen countries who have very good mixed doubles pedigrees and and um, you you tell me, Warren, who do you think? <laughs> you know that just as well as I do. But let's go with the Canada Switzerland final.
1: I think it's a tough one. There's probably four or five teams there at least. I agree, yeah. Mixed doubles is far less predictable than, I think, four-person curling. Do you think there needs to be more happening in Canada with the development of this this sport?
2: <laughs> well, for years here, it's, oh, let's play this as well as a four-person, right? So now I think you're starting to see teams are going to dedicate themselves to it. You know, Laura Walker and Kirk Myers have announced that they're kind of dedicating more time. To mixed doubles you know the mixed double specialists in this country kind of got the what's the word the, the, the respect wasn't there that <laughs> they were hoping for but it is a specialized sport i mean that's the big thing but i think what needs to happen yes as uh, the end you have to have more of a call it a major tour there's 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 talk in the works you know if you, if you talk to john morris or or uh, Wayne Tuck, who are, you know, the, there's 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 lots going on kind of behind the scenes right now about mixed doubles and the establishment of a tour. So I'm looking forward to that growing. But I think you're going to see start to see more and more people use mixed doubles as kind of their viable primary focus rather than as well as uh, you know the four person game. So I think that that will certainly be helpful to to grow the mixed doubles program here. You know, listen this year this year we kind of got caught without being able to have the trials. Rachel and John were kind of put in a position where I hate to say it, but there was there was nowhere to go. Other, after John won, John and Caitlin won gold in in Pyeongchang. There was really nowhere to go but down. Kind of an unenviable task that they had to, to deal with in Beijing, and and uh, we all saw what happened there. So I, I think the best thing that ever happened in, in mixed doubles is having this you know, Constantini and uh, Moser win the gold in. For Italy in the next Olympics, like think of the think of the focus that's going to be on the mixed doubles competition in uh, Milan Cortina. It's going to be amazing. So I think all the teams here, kind of uh, the Canadian teams, just it would be an amazing event to be a part of in uh, in in twenty twenty six.
3: I want to get away from high performance here for a bit and talk more about the growth of curling that happens every four years on an Olympic year. I, I know talking to quite a few of this clubs in the states, they're learned to curls. I think it might have been Las Vegas curling club uh, they are completely full till the end of may or into sometime in june they don't have any room any room for anybody else they've locked up every single learn to curl every class every everything that's um awesome. and that's, that's that's a kind of a normal thing across the entire u.s and the huge growth every four years like you're from ontario i'm from i'm from alberta and, and uh, warren's from bc so we got kind of a cross canada idea of of it how do the t- clubs in ontario take advantage of this Quadrennial burst in our sport, or or do they, or do they do enough? Because it's a it's a real opportunity, and the, and the clubs in the U.S. really grow uh, quickly. Um, we see and we see some growth in Alberta. I just don't really know the clubs in Ontario well enough. We,
2: we've been losing clubs
3: left and right the last few years, so
2: you know sheets disappearing. Mostly the golf and country clubs here, they're they're kind of just taking their they curling out of the program. So I don't know how exactly how many sheets we've lost, but it's you know I would say six or seven facilities were have been closed in the last five or six years. So it's significant loss here. So the clubs that are still going are very busy. I think the expansion in Toronto I call the GTA Southern Ontario even is more diversity. We have a very diverse community here. Um, I think there's an outreach program that's that's required to, to get into the schools and Chad McMullen's Rocks and Rings program. When you're full already, it's hard to expand if you know what I mean. So I've not seen the growth around the Olympics for the last two or three cycles in Southern Ontario, the GTA sort of thing. But I've seen it everywhere else. And I think that's a good thing. And you have to be more proactive than say, oh, by the way, the Olympics has come and let's just have a little learn to curl after it's done. I think start a year ahead and say, hey, it's Olympic year. Here's what's going, try this out and then hey, tune into the Olympics as it comes out. Like I think you have to be a little bit more proactive than reactive, I think would be we would be very helpful in Canada. I think many people in Canada know what curling is all about. They watch en- enough on television, so it's not really a surprise. Where I think in other countries, including the US, they kind of tune in every four years and they go, Oh my God, this looks so much fun. And it is, and they try it and it's amazing. Where we're kind of there's a lot of curling on television in here, so it's not as a uh, big of a surprise, I guess, as the but i think i think curling canada would be would be wise to be more proactive with it okay olympic cycle olympic year naming your olympic teams sooner would be helpful you'd get them on the bandwagon with you know here's here's the team to watch here's the team to focus on that type of thing so it feels very rushed and in kind of last minute here in canada compared to other countries yeah and i think i think just just not using the same old formula that all the other countries are using because we it's not the same here we have to think outside the box a little bit
3: i agree with you one thousand percent on that i I think you're bang on that a lot of people that i talk to in even in edmonton haven't tried curling like they, they all watch it to your point mike it's on tv a lot they haven't really been down to the club. I, I'm not sure if they're they're worried about looking foolish or something if they try it. Or I'm just not exactly sure. Well, it's like anything,
2: right? Unless unless you know people that do it, it's tough, right?
3: Yeah, and that's kind of the what I was trying to get that get at is just you know people I, that I talk to through hockey or through softball or through these various sports. They're athletic people, but they just haven't been in the curling club. And if they gave it a try and you know went upstairs and saw the mayhem that happens at a curling club, they'd be in there like crazy. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just a matter of get it, getting a minute of the club. Not just uh, every, every for you know for a month after the Olympics every
2: year. That that's not the answer in Canada. I don't think. No. But but promoting it around the Olympics is great. I think that's a really good thing to do because that's more mainstream than watching the Briar, right? Like that's a much more mainstream thing to watch the Olympics. You know, I watched I watched the Summer Olympics. I've never tried any of those sports. if You know what I mean? Like so, you do it. You do it because you're supporting your country, and I think that's much of what you know, curling Canada could work around. Maybe another reason to get the Olympic trials going sooner so you have a team to focus on. Who is our team? Listen, Brad Gushu, there's Newfoundlanders everywhere. So I mean every <laughs> it's one of those one of those uh, things where if you know if you knew Brad was going to be Olympic team a year out, how much fun would it be? Every time he comes, there's a bond spiel all over the country. Hey, our Olympic team's coming into town our Olympic you know, they can they can build it that way. It'd be really great. If you're looking for grassroots expansion and drawing interest, that's the first step is kind of oh yeah, I know those guys. They're going to the Olympics in six months and then uh, you can get people, hey you want to try it? Sure, I'd love to try it and build it that way. You know, be be more proactive rather than say, okay, oh well, the Olympics is on, then we're gonna run a come out and try curling in March and then the
1: season's over. The no-tick rule. How do you think that's worked out?
2: I like the no-tick rule. I think I would like the shot for the lead to be harder, though. I don't think I don't think hitting the line is hard enough. I'd like to have like a, a high spot and a tight spot to the house. And I'd also like to see a corner guard spot on each side. So you, you have the fact that you have the hammer. If you're two down coming home with, you want you don't want play in the middle. You want to be able to throw a corner guard and have it not be allowed to be ticked. We said we saw that in the uh, one of the finals yesterday or the sixth end yesterday, where they threw a corner guard and then they ticked it into the rings. So I'd, I'd like to see a high guard and a tight guard on the center line, a spot on the center line. Still sit the center line, but just cover part of that spot and same thing with two two corner guards. So put a little more pressure on the leads to to just don't lob it out there. It's pretty easy with the brooms now to kind of sear it straight or make it curl a bit and get onto the line. So I'd like to see it a little tougher, but also a couple spots in the corner. But I do like I do like the, the no-tick. I think it's it's an important thing, but I think you need to earn it a little bit more than just lob it out there onto the center line if you want to you want to take advantage of the no-tick.
0: Mike Harris has been our guest. Uh, what did we learn today, Mike? We need a we need a kid to hack into the Scottish software program, okay, yes, we can't get important. it. That's important. Okay, we we need a kid. <laughs> the only thing I want to ask you before we go is, um, you know, every show over the last, uh, as everyone's pointed out, these teams are breaking up after four years, which is part of the deal. When you talk about guys like uh, Mark Kennedy and Jacobs and Johnny Moe and these guys stepping away from the game, what wears curlers down more—the the mental side or the physical side?
2: It depends what position you play. Oh, okay. The days are gone where you can have a, I hate to say, a 40-year-old front end. So it's too physically demanding now. You know, Kevin and I have talked about it a lot, but we look looked at the, the front end for, the, the sorry, the two sweepers for Italy, Mosein um, and They're both like 6'5", 220, chiseled, make the rock do whatever they want. You look at Bobby Lammy and uh, Hammy McMillan for Scotland, just incredible sweepers able to maneuver the rock around. So the days of the career lead at age 45, 46, 47, hate to say it, but that position has become obsolete. The real physical game, for the front end and the sweepers, and then the back end. And listen, I get so tired, I I can hardly yell "hurry" anymore. That's how that's how mentally draining it is. <laughs> <you> skip, so. <laughs> there, there's actually been studies done where the skips actually burn as many calories as the front end, if you can believe it. I find that hard to believe as a as, as a former skipper. No but, kidding. Well, wow. you know, you're not, you can't really take uh, a moment off when you're when you're skipping and eating. Yeah, actually, even the front end too. But it, it's a lot. But the physical side now is uh, it's really in the last five, six years, since we've kind of had that whole broom gate and figured out how to actually sweep, careers are shorter. <laughs> you know, they can't, this can't keep up at, you know, once you get into your mid forties, unless you're an exceptionally fit and strong athlete, but the wear and tear. Yeah, yeah, just, just tons of injuries, right, is the, is the problem with uh, with the front ends now. They're so big and strong and they're, they're yeah, they're just, they just they wear themselves out. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about the three man team, Kevin, I mean, it, might, it might be time to go like three front enders. You know, share some of the sweeping duties. That might be. That might be. There uh, maybe the the wave of the future for teams.
0: Uh, all I know is what Mike said is you got no shot, Kevin, at a comeback. Okay, even if you're at the front end.
2: Oh no, he's
3: good. He can. He can skip. He can skip. <laughs> he's good. All those years of skipping. I was burning as many calories as Mark and Ben.
0: That's awesome. Only the skips say that, by the way. You know, Harrison uh, Martin.
2: That's true. That's true. It is. Yeah, it's a very biased, very biased poll.
0: Mike, thanks a million, man. We appreciate this. Uh, we'll keep watching you great great job you're doing on Sportsnet, and uh we'll we'll see you in old
2: always a pleasure
0: thanks mike right on mike thanks man
2: hey, cheers
3: guys thanks hey thanks a lot mike yeah see ya
0: Okay, here we go. It's time for story time. Uh, we were just chatting. Kevin, what are you going to do? You're going to put your slippers on, have a little brandy. Okay. Or I'm getting my ass caught, Warren. A red velvet jacket and enjoy the story time. I've got my pipe, my Hugh Hefner silk robe. Kevin and I are ready. Uh, Kevin, there's a nice rocking chair for you to pull up in. There's a little seat for me over here. Story time is brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, and a proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of curling. Okay, Warren, how far back are you taking us uh, about your story with the briar?
1: Oh, way back. <laughs> okay. We were talking about uh, traditions that this sport has and originally coming from the briar. And of course, the briar was the first major property starting back in 1927. That's where all this interprovincial stuff started from. And uh, a guy by the name Walter Stewart, who was the owner of McDonald Tobacco in Montreal, along with another one, George Cameron in Winnipeg, were the guys that brought this whole concept together... And the things that McDonald Tobacco brought with the Briar stayed with it pretty much for fifty years, and uh, I was around to enjoy or experience some of those kind of quirky things that they did. And what I'm going to talk about today is some of the degree quirky things that were part of McDonald Tobacco in their in their final years, in particular the owner then Walter Stewart's son David, somewhat of an eccentric man, but uh, some very interesting things. So. With the Briar until 1980, every Sunday morning of the opening weekend, there was a church parade. And everybody, whether it was in your vehicle who was cold enough or you actually walked down the street to church, every team on Sunday morning. And that tradition was stopped in 1980, not easily, but the only reason it was stopped in 1980 because the Briar used to start on Monday and end on Saturday. And when Labatz came in with the extended event with a three-team playoff, it had to start on Sunday. So there was no longer really a time for a church parade, but before that, it was mandatory. That was one of the things you (laughs) had to be part of, was the church parade. So that was one. The other interesting quirk of McDonald tobacco was, I mean, we start the briar and we go and we play today, and we don't interfere with the players in any degree, except in the days of McDonald, you played the entire week, except Tuesday night was a night off and there was no curling Tuesday night because that was the traditional Briar dinner. And David Stewart, who was then the president of the company, came in and he was the chairman and pretty much was the only speaker at that dinner. But it was always an extraordinary meal. I can remember one in particular, 1975, Fredericton and they decided to serve lobster at the Tuesday night dinner, but there was lobster, I can remember there's lobsters in garbage bags, you could have, if you wanted six <laughs> lobsters, you could have them, and, and that's the way they did this dinner, and they also brought in entertainers, and it was usually Canadian entertainers, they were well, well-known people, that was always a surprise, you never knew who this entertainer was going to be, but from the day it was people like Wayne and Schuster, the Irish Rovers, Charlie Farquharson who was Don Heron, those type of entertainers, but you never knew who it was going to be until they were on the stage and performing. That was David Stewart's dinner. But David Stewart was a history buff, a very eccentric man. And he would get up at each of these dinners and there was always people dressed in costumes around the room. And often it was costumes of soldiers that represented a particular point in time that took place around that city you were in. But the other amazing thing about David Stewart and his philosophy is that he had created a Canadian flag, what he thought was the real Canadian flag. And This flag was up on the wall at every one of these dinners, and this is what it looked like. There was a top part of the flag, it was red, and it represented the English ancestors. There was a bottom part of the flag, and it was blue. It represented the French ancestors. And in the middle of the flag was the Stuart Tartan, and that was for the Scottish ancestors. Going diagonally down the flag were 12 stars in varying size who represented the minority groups in the country. And in the middle of the tartan was a gold maple leaf, and on each end of the tartan was a curling stone because it was his philosophy that curling was the real item that bonded the country together, which is why McDonald tobacco got involved with it in 1927. So at every one of these dinners that David Stewart was always there, his flag was on the wall, and he got up and he gave that explanation of what the real Canadian flag should really look like. Eccentric man, very wealthy. He would come to the Briar. He had a suite, the best suite in the hotel you're in, and anybody was welcome to go in there anytime of practically day and night, and have a drink with David.
0: <laughs> Where was this guy, Kevin, when I was going to the Briars? I can go to his suite any time <laughs> of day. Yeah, yep. And 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 Tuesday's the new Friday. Uh, fantastic story. Uh, thank you very much for Meridian Manufacturing for bringing us that. Okay, I'm going to drop something here, Warren, before the next show. The Princess Auto Championships were fantastic. Okay. When is the briar going to go to six days and eight ends? Just saying, just saying, okay, just saying, okay, that I don't have to commit to freaking 10, to 11 days. If you're if you're a player in particular, it's pretty much two weeks. I'm going to get killed, Kev, in this show. <laughs> people are going to murder me. That's a wrap uh, on the show this week. Happy Easter, everybody. We want to thank the usual suspects, uh, Rod Paulson, his company In-House Strategies, for doing all the great work on our Facebook. Check it out. Join the group. Uh, reminder again send us an email inside curling at gmail.com if we read your email you're going to get a copy of warren's book sticks and stones which is how curling came into the olympics this show today kevin comes to you from buffalo toronto port coquitlam edmonton and vancouver other places around the world okay great stuff thanks a lot to mike he's our guy in vancouver and of course we you're out in port coquitlam kev you're down watching your daughter
3: Throwing some pitches. Yeah, down in Buffalo, going to go to Akron, uh, Ohio, actually, and watch them play. Pretty excited to get uh, get to see Michaela. Go for dinner with her tonight and watch a couple of ball games, and then head her home. Good deal.
0: Okay, everyone, have a good week. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling. See you, Warren. See you, Kevin. Yeah,
3: thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.